Welcome back to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility, focusing on dancers and other aesthetic athletes. This is co-host Jennifer Milner, here with the founder of the Bendy Bodies podcast, Dr. Linda Bluestein. Our goal is to bring you state-of-the-art information to help you live your best life. Please remember to always consult with your own healthcare team before making any changes to your routine. Our guest today is Dr. Alan Pusinki, an internist who has been studying hypermobility disorders and related autonomic and sleep disorders for over 20 years. Dr. Posinki, welcome to Bendy Bodies. Thank you. Happy to be here. You have specialized in this field for quite a while now. And one of the interesting things about hypermobility and the associated disorders is that there's no one single clear path to becoming a specialist. And we would love to hear sort of what got you started in this particular field. Well, I'm a general internist by training. Uh, happened to fall into a study of uh, chronic fatigue syndrome in the mid 80s when this was a just evolving concept. And over the next uh, 15 years or so, gradually sort of recognize all the pieces of that paradigm. And by, I don't know, around 2000, probably, there was one eureka moment where I realized that all of my chronic fatigue syndrome patients were hypermobile. Uh, and as I learned more about the hypermobility syndromes, I realized that that accounted for a large number of the symptoms in the CFS population. So then I started looking into, you know, early on in the days of CFS, early 90s, I hate to say, <laughs> uh, it was pretty obvious that people with any sort of chronic fatigue, at least by and large, the vast majority of the ones I was seeing, their fatigue would never get better unless they got a restful night's sleep. Uh, and trying to figure out exactly what was wrong with their sleep and why they woke up unrefreshed even after what seemed like a decent amount of sleep. Um, and then again, this century, sort of uh, seeing how all these pieces fit together, I, I connected with some people in the Ehlers-Danlos community and recognized that they had many of the same features. Their patterns of autonomic dysfunction, their patterns of non-restorative sleep, uh, look very similar to the chronic fatigue, fatigue syndrome patients. And then I fell in with the, some of the dysautonomia community as well, um, because, you know, each of those groups, as you sort of alluded to, there is no training program for people in this field. Uh, so the people attracted to this field are, have a genetics background or have a rheumatology background or have a background in, in one area, but have no, you know, folks who are geneticists have no training in uh, management of sleep disorders, for example. Um, so as a general internist, these things sort of appeal to me and seem like a just sort of a classic internist's uh, condition to, to recognize and manage uh, these overlapping conditions. Well, and I think that's a common theme we've seen with a lot of the people we've spoken to, whether it's a rheumatologist or a, a GI specialist or whoever it is, they start pulling on one thread and then it starts to pull these other things and then it goes to this and then it goes to this. And we see that so many times, this, this, all the common comorbidities that, that sort of show up at the same time. And, and that's why it's really hard to have that one specialty that you can say, this is how you, this is how you dig deep into hypermobility, follow this one path. 
Um, so today we want to focus on hypermobility and fatigue. Um, if we could start with uh, just some definitions. So what what is fatigue? When we're talking about fatigue, what are we what are we talking well, about? Well, I think at a very basic level, fatigue is the inability or difficulty accomplishing simple tasks. If you you know can't walk a block, if you can't walk up a flight of stairs. Uh, and, and the important distinction, I guess, that we often make is between fatigue and sleepiness. In these conditions, a lot of people have both, but uh, physical fatigue, that is your legs are too weak, your body's too weak, uh, or you tire out so quickly that you can't accomplish simple tasks is really, uh, we distinguish that from somebody who say has untreated sleep apnea, who could be sleepy all the time, but when they're awake are able to function normally and, and do physical tasks. Okay, that's that's really helpful. And and what sort of links do you see between hypermobility disorders and fatigue? I guess, you know, as I said, the first the initial link was recognizing that that a lot of patients with chronic fatigue as a primary symptoms were were hypermobile. And then um, I know the uh, Rodney Graham's group in the UK when they looked at uh, presenting symptoms or chief complaints in in a year's worth of ehlers danlos patients. Uh, their number one complaint, their number one symptom was pain, but their number two symptom was fatigue. Uh, and I think that was surprising to a lot of the specialists who were focused on individual body organ systems. And I think the very first Ehlers-Danlos meeting I went to, I think maybe Howard Levy from Hopkins gave the, the opening plenary talk and, and made these comments. And I think with a, with a sort of after, uh, with a uh, mentioning that even though fatigue was as common, it wasn't quite clear why people with the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, uh, why fatigue was such a problem for them. And I thought what was pretty obvious to me, having worked with similar patient groups, that their sleep was awful and chronic pain, their most common symptom is a common cause of fatigue. And, and certainly in terms of uh, disability, most of the patients I see who are limited in their ability, say, to work, it's not pain or an upset stomach that keeps them from being able to work. It's that they just can't accomplish physical and, and cognitive tasks because they just don't have the energy. Sure. So underlying causes of fatigue in, in these populations would be uh, disordered sleep for sure. That makes sense. And chronic pain. Um, are there other things that you think contribute to, to sleep besides those? Well, depression is the other piece. I, I often talk about the, the sort of vicious cycle of chronic pain, poor sleep, depression, and fatigue, because each one of those aggravates the others. And again, in our sort of specialty-focused medicine in this country, patients may see a psychiatrist about their depression, but the psychiatrist doesn't know anything about managing chronic pain and probably doesn't know anything about how to, how to fix the improvement of their sleep. And certainly pain specialists similarly I've been surprised there are even pain specialists who say they're not comfortable prescribing antidepressants. And it's like, how can you be a pain specialist and not prescribe antidepressants? Because in my patient population, these two things just go hand in hand. I do often reassure people that depression in, in this way is sort of part and parcel of their illness. And it's not any kind of, uh, any kind of implication that they have a personality disorder or that they're not coping well with, with what they're dealing with. But that we know what I typically tell them is it's just chronic illness, chronic pain depletes your, what I call your feel-good neurotransmitters. Uh, and you end up being depressed and irritable and trouble concentrating and lack of motivation and all those things we see as cardinal features of depression. Beyond that sort of vicious cycle and that, and that sort of big three contributing to fatigue, uh, certainly there are 
a host of metabolic factors that can contribute to fatigue. Common ones I see are deficiencies in uh, vitamin D, vitamin B12, magnesium. Uh, I see a lot of patients specifically, especially young women who are testosterone deficient. And I think that's a factor in uh, fatigue and a number of their symptoms in, in this subgroup of patients. You know, the big picture in hypermobile people, simple tasks are tiring. When they go for a walk, I often, I often sort of reassure people, you know, when you go for a walk with your spouse, you're doing twice as much work as they are because with each step, your joints are slipping and sliding and your muscles are doing extra work to do that. Simple task, you know, even simpler. I, I, uh, I use the illustration of opening a heavy door. I mean, I, I just, you know, for most people, it's not a big deal. They push on the door and they lock their wrist, they lock their shoulder, they lock their shoulder blade, they lock their rib cage and they push. But if all those joints are unstable, and I've seen patients coming into my own office, they lean against the door with their shoulder because they can't, they can't open it otherwise. So very simple tasks are, are extra work. And then, I mean, other stresses and so on, but I guess the other, the other piece somewhat ironically is autonomic dysfunction itself, which tends to be both a cause and an effect of fatigue in that the body's inability to maintain an even keel, uh, exaggerated stress responses, and then overcorrections and then recorrections. That's sort of what I call autonomic roller coaster wastes a lot of energy. If you're lightheaded every time you stand up, your body kicks in too much adrenaline to correct for that. Those simple things are tiring. And then unfortunately, in a sort of unfortunate paradox, uh, the more rundown and overtired you get, the worse your autonomic dysfunction tends to be. And then indirectly, I think autonomic dysfunction is a major player in poor sleep quality. So it's, it's also a big factor in fatigue. Well, so speaking about sleep, you've talked about how being sleepy is different from fatigue. So um, what role does sleep play in fatigue and, and in this population, especially with having trouble getting what you said, it seemed like they were getting a good night's sleep. What, what's the- I mean, I think it's a, it's a huge factor. I mean, it and pain are the two major things that, that perpetuate fatigue. It's, and we know from their sleep studies, they just don't get a restful night's sleep. They may fall asleep and sleep through a night okay, but often they're spending little or no time in deep sleep. Often the continuity of their sleep is disrupted 100 times or more in, in seven or eight hours of sleep. So it's a huge factor in perpetuating fatigue. As I said earlier, if you can't, you know, you can address all the other issues people are having, uh, but if they can't get a decent night's sleep, it's going to be hard for their level of fatigue to improve. And that's... Yeah, and this whole the whole concept of non-restorative sleep. You know, somebody who's sleepy can sleep and wake up and feel somewhat refreshed. But in these syndromes, people just—it's incredibly frustrating that they wake up and feel like they haven't slept at all. I tend to—I I like to use the um, sort of metaphor of—I uh, suggest to patients that they consider that their body has a fuel tank, it has an energy reserve, and that sleep is their major chance to put gas in the tank, and that. So many other stresses that they deal with every day are depleting their energy. And so if sleep isn't restful and pain and, you know, household or school or other chores or other stresses, if, you know, if they're lightheaded every time they stand up, you know, percentage of people, their blood sugar is fluctuating. All these things are sort of draining their energy. And most of these people, when I say, look, here's what's, here's what's putting gas in your tank, a decent night's sleep. Here's all the things that are taking energy out. It's no wonder that every day you're kind of net negative, and after years of years of being in this cycle, you're exhausted. 
That's actually a great analogy. And I have a, I have a question about that too, with when it comes to exercise, because I feel like with a lot of people who do not experience these conditions, when they exercise and they move, that actually, um, actually does help add some fuel to their tank, but maybe because of the joint instability and a variety of other factors, pain or, or what have you, that when people that have hypermobility disorders, some people, when they exercise and move, it may have the opposite effect, depending maybe on where they are metabolically or other. Do you, do you see that? Yeah. I think the big issue here is sort of, I guess the, the larger issue of what we talk about is sort of budgeting your energy. Uh, and walking that tightrope of trying to do as much as you can every day without doing too much. And exercise is a good example where, you know, a lot of my retired patients will say, well, I'm exhausted. I can't exercise. And so my usual response is, you know, how about lying in bed? Okay, I can do that. I'm good at that. I said, okay, well, so lie in bed and move your arms and legs around for, you know, a few seconds, a few times a day. But yeah, it's, it's difficult because one of the other, one of the other, pitfalls uh, that can easily entrap people is that as they start exercising, that tends to boost adrenaline levels. It can kick in endorphins and other things and can mask their pain and fatigue. And they don't realize that they're pushing too hard and they should be stopping to rest. And that's, you know, so exercise is critical, but not doing too much is is just as critical. Uh, And a lot of people I think just have, you know, when you say, oh, you need to exercise, they think you're telling them to go to the gym for an hour. And you say, no, you know, lie on your back and do a bicycly thing with your legs for 30 seconds. I mean, just do something and do it fairly consistently. And if you have problems with lightheadedness, then, you know, start with exercising flat on your back. So yeah, exercise is critical to getting people better, but it's got to be sort of done carefully. Well, and one of the things that you touched briefly on um, earlier, we talked, you talked briefly about depression and sort of being part of that vicious cycle. I know that you presented a webinar called Psychiatric Misdiagnoses and EDS. When is anxiety not anxiety? We know a lot of people with um, hypermobile disorders often have anxiety, depression, things like that. So what role does anxiety play in fatigue? Well, the, the major point of that webinar was that I see a lot of patients who've, uh, whose physicians have mistaken uh, their exaggerated sympathetic adrenaline fight or flight stress response for anxiety. Uh, hmm. And unfortunately, you know, if your body makes a surge of adrenaline because your blood sugars just crashed or because you're overtired or because you're in pain, you can have all the symptoms of a panic attack. Uh, and so unfortunately, the way these things are diagnosed, the DSM-5 criteria you can say, well, yeah, I did have this. I did have chest tightness. I did have shortness of breath. I did have heart racing. I did kind of feel clammy and sweaty. And then you say, okay, well, well, you just had a panic attack and you must have some underlying anxiety disorder. Um, so, uh, you know, there are some people who have anxiety. Clearly they're worried about their health. They often have, you know, family stresses, financial stresses, school. I mean, you know, uh, they're, they're so, sort of a, I don't know, situational or appropriate level of anxiety. Um, but in particular, mistaking these acute episodes of anxiety for, for panic or anxiety. And some patients will come right out and say, you know, I get these panic attacks, but I'm really not anxious. I'm not upset. I'm not, I, I don't know, you know, I'm not really anxious. Um, and unfortunately, the English language doesn't have a great other word for this. Uh, I tend to call it jitteriness and say, do you feel jittery? 
Um, but some people will say, oh, yeah, it's definitely physical. It's not psychological when I have these panic attacks. And it's like, okay, well, let's stop calling them panic attacks. Uh, let's call them adrenaline surges or something. So if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying um, the basis of the paper, you were talking about maybe looking at it from a dysautonomic point of view rather than from an, an anxiety point correct. of view. Is correct. that correct? Okay. Right, right. And even I think the very first time I gave this talk, um, some parents came up to me afterwards and said things like, gee, that was really interesting because once we got my daughter's uh, sleep problems under control, she didn't have anxiety under more, anymore. Uh, once, I, once my son's uh, pain was adequately controlled, he didn't have, and he didn't have anxiety or ADD anymore. That's really interesting. Sorry, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm processing that because <laughs> as much as we talk about it, all the comorbidities kind of going together, it's really interesting to think about just switching your, the way that you approach it slightly may have a huge impact on, um, on how your day-to-day life right, goes. Right. And unfortunately, I, I, don't, I don't know, I guess conversely isn't the right word, but you know, some of these patients are, are di- even diagnosed as bipolar, uh, and it's really hard to get that out of their medical records. So there are, there are other unfortunate implications to these misdiagnoses. Well, so you've, we've covered several things that kind of go along with fatigue. Um, are there any other symptoms that commonly co-occur with fatigue that we haven't talked about? Well, I guess the whole, the whole collection of mast cell dysfunction mm-hmm. and, and the symptoms that go along with that are, are common uh, you know, we commonly see an association with thyroid mobility syndromes and the dysautonomias uh, and mast cell dysfunction can aggravate, you know, fatigue, pain, autonomic dysfunction. Uh, so that's probably the other big one that I can think of. Yeah. I'll, may, think of <laughs> may think of something else later. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, I'm, I'm just, I have this picture in my head of soup and every different ingredient that gets added to it. You can't, parse the ingredients back out. They all just form this one soup, which right, is that sounds for, right, person. Right. The way I, you know? what I often say to patients is uh, the challenge for me is not so much putting all the pieces of the puzzle together, but figuring out which pieces go in which puzzle. I love that. Can you say that one more time? I was going to ask you to say that again, because I, <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, the, the, what I often explain to patients is the challenge to me of trying to evaluate their condition and and set up a treatment plan is not so much trying to put all the pieces of the puzzle together, but trying to figure out which pieces go in which puzzle. Oh, I like that. That that's really good. Mm-hmm. And, and that <laughs> which, is, which unfortunately is why a lot of physicians uh, why we can't attract other physicians to this field because it's right. <laughs> we've got we've gotten some through the podcast actually we've gotten some physicians who have listened to the podcast. And, and contacted us and have started to notice more of these patients in their practice. And, and right. so, you know, you, right. you get people, you know, you reach people in a variety of different ways. I'm sure you've had many people come to your presentations and, and talks or read your articles. And, you know, it's, I, I feel like awareness is improving, but obviously we yeah. have a long ways to go. Right. Right. Yeah. That's obviously the hope is that, is that, Physicians will recognize somebody like this in their practice and then say, oh, gee, I think they may be this, maybe I have two or three other people have something like this. I need to learn more about this. Uh, doesn't happen as often as we'd like. But. Sure. Well, I, we, we do. I am seeing it happen, though. I, one of my dancers has um, was diagnosed with EDS and her mom is an internist and her mom 
in the journey of sort of finding the support for her daughter and digging through it, has gone back through her records and is calling all of these patients of hers back into her practice and going, I've learned some things. Let's talk about this. Right, so, right. you know, the more information um, is out there. I remember the, you know, one of the first patients I saw with dysautonomia and the first patient I saw with mast cell disorders in 1991. Uh, and, you know, one of these people actually moved away for 15 years and then came back. And when she came back, she said, do you remember me? I said, no, I do remember you. But now I can explain to you why your blood pressure would go from 110 over 70 to 170 over 110. <laughs> I said, uh, uh, yeah, I explain that to people all the time that I'm constantly trying to learn more things and, and adapting the way that I, that I practice and what I prescribe and how I prescribe it. And so, you know, hopefully, um, you know, care will continue to improve as we, as we are learning more. And and more. I guess a postscript to your question about sort of how I came to be an expert in this as I learned from my patients. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I only gradually realized that, gee, most of my migraine patients are hypermobile. <laughs> Most people with varicose veins are hypermobile. Most people, you know, and some people would come in with, why do I bruise so easily? And I said, well, do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have that? And they're like, yeah. How do you know all those things? I said, well, because medicine's about pattern recognition. And uh, <laughs> in fact, when I went to the, you know, the first few dollars downloads groups that I went to, I, I sort of, you know, jokingly mentioned to some of the geneticists, you know, I'm a general internist. I don't have a sign over my door that says, if you can put your foot behind your head, that that you should come and see me. These are just people in my general medical practice who come in with symptoms that end up being related to, to joint and tissue laxity. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I want to circle back to what you were saying earlier about bipolar, uh, bipolar disorder and, and potentially some people being misdiagnosed mm -hmm. because I know that there were some studies um, done a number of years ago that did look at the overlap between bipolar and um, hypermobility disorders, Ehlers-Danlos, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, so that's actually a really interesting thought is, does somebody present as if they might have bipolar, but actually the underlying cause of some of those symptoms is, is the dysautonomia or some other. Yeah. Can you elaborate yeah. on that a little bit more? Right. That's an important. Well, point. right. Similarly, there are studies showing an increased incidence of anxiety in the, in the hypermobility population. And my question is then, you know, are these, have these people been evaluated for autonomic dysfunction? You know, just because they satisfy the DSM criteria for anxiety doesn't really mean they have psychiatric problems. Just the way these, these conditions are defined symptomatically. Um, certainly, yeah, I've seen people who similarly, you know, will present with typical symptoms of mania. Gee, you know, uh, for the last two nights, I hardly slept at all and I got so much done. And, you know, I was up all night cleaning the house and doing the laundry and whatever. And you say, okay, gee, that sounds like you were manic. It's like, no, actually I was exhausted. I was running and I was running on adrenaline, you know? Uh, so, um, yeah, it's, it's tricky. I know I've just seen some people who said, oh yeah, you know, 10 years ago, they diagnosed me with bipolar and it's obvious I don't have that. And finally people are willing to believe that I don't have that. And, or, you know, once I got my pain treated appropriately or started getting more restful sleep, then I stopped having these so-called manic episodes. Um, so now there are some patients I see who have both, and that's very, very difficult to sometimes tease out. There was one woman who I, I struggled trying to get her a more restful night's sleep for a while. We tried probably half a dozen things. Um, and finally I said, well, you know, the medications that usually work for people like you aren't working. I said, maybe this really is psychiatric. 
you know, is that, what do you think about that? She said, well, haven't I told you that my brother and my dad were both bipolar? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, no, you never told me that. I should have asked, I guess. Um, but that was kind of the exception that proves the rule. And most of the time, but, um, but there, you know, I would imagine there's, there's overlap, but I, um, I think that based on the symptomatology, some of the dysautonomia symptoms could easily be mistaken for psychiatric symptoms. Absolutely. And it's interesting to me too, because one of the most anxiety provoking things is, you know, going into a doctor and being either told directly or, you know, somebody implying that you're, that you're crazy or lazy or, or whatever. Right. Um, whereas you I feel possibly like, have all these symptoms, so you must be making them up. Right. Right. And it's very disarming of the anxiety when somebody believes you and they say, I have a, I, I have a plan and I think I know why you feel this way. And so I also feel like anxiety, you can get anxious about being anxious and you know, it can, it can work the other way as, as well. Right. Right. Certainly. And the analogous sleep situation is what I call anticipatory insomnia. If you don't sleep well, you worry about not sleeping well, and that just makes it worse. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely. So we know that in 2017, the International Consortium reclassified um, the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, right, and came up with stricter criteria for hypermobile EDS, and um, also came up with the new classification of hypermobility spectrum disorders. And we know that they also, in coming up with this criteria, kind of left out the comorbidities, et cetera. But I would love to hear in your practice in your experience, do you see any difference in terms of the symptom of fatigue in people that, that would be more likely to meet the criteria for hypermobile EDS versus people that are more likely to meet the criteria for hypermobility spectrum disorder? No, I really don't. I mean, you know, I, I, this is when I get to sort of fall back on saying I'm a clinician, so it doesn't matter to me whether somebody's on, you know, a couple inches on one side of the line or a couple inches on the other. Um, we certainly see a lot of people who fall one criterion short of the new, of meeting the new criteria. And that clearly doesn't change what they have. If you want to call it generalized hypermobility spectrum disorder, you want to call it hypermobile EDS. Um, I tend to tell people, you know, for all intents and purposes, this is EDS because if you go online and try to find resources or information about hypermobility spectrum disorder, you're not going to find much. But fortunately now, there's a lot of information about their Ehlers-Danlos and just don't sweat the fact that, you know, essentially I, I say that these new criteria were designed as entry criteria for research protocols. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as long as you're not trying to get into a research study, nobody, nobody's going to, you know, matter. Uh, and even for things like, you know, uh, disability or FMLA forms for employers or something like that, you know, Ehlers-Danlos is something, somebody doesn't know something about it could look up and say, oh, gee, okay, I get it. Uh, if they see HSD on a form and they go to somebody else, you know, so I, I don't find the distinction clinically helpful. Um, and, uh, you know, some of us are kind of hoping that, that, uh, that the criteria will be revised. I mean, the, when they were first created, the idea of this was going to be a working document and that as time went on, if we saw that it, you know, it was excluding a lot of people or, you know, that we might revise them. And I don't know what the status of that is. Right. They certainly seem to have just as many as the comorbidities and, and mm -hmm. certainly they're not any less ill than I have patients who do meet the criteria who are able to work full time. I have patients who don't meet the criteria who are disabled, you know, mm -hmm. so. Um, right. And, and a lot of people, I think, 
you know, they learn about Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. And then if they go in for an appointment and somebody actually does take a look and assesses them and says, no, you don't meet the criteria, even for the hypermobile type, and we don't suspect another type. And, you know, I think in some cases they, they do feel like they are, um, going to miss out then on maybe some coverage for some insurance things and or being taken seriously by their other providers. And I think in some cases it, it can affect how seriously the family even um, takes you. I mean, we, we, we keep getting told over and over again that it's not a lesser diagnosis, but um, right. perception is everything. So. Yeah. And obviously there are still other physicians who say, well, you know, if, if you haven't had the genetic test, then you don't have it. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's like, there is no genetic test. You know, it's like get into arguments with your specialists and you know orthopedists or rheumatologists who see my patients say hey, you're not hypermobile. What? Well, well, I don't. You're not hypermobile at all. It's like it's like well, well, yeah, actually they are. Yeah, a rheumatologist recently told one of my patients that that it was impossible to sublux your hip. You, she'd never seen anybody with a sublux hip, and I was like. I'd probably see somebody every day with a suplex hip. <laughs> so still some professional education we need to do. For sure. Definitely. And in terms of um, treatments for fatigue, you've mentioned one of them, which is getting better sleep for sure. But of course there's different treatments for improving someone's sleep. Right. Um, can you share, shed some light on how you approach the treatment aspect of these conditions in your, in your patients? Well, so as we talked about, there are certainly numerous causes. And so identifying, going through, you know, very thorough evaluation, identify which causes are most prevalent, most relevant uh, in a particular patient sort of is going to guide your treatment approach. Uh, I think, again, going back to the big ones, uh, a lot of patients I see, you know, come in not on any kind of pain medication. And uh, there's this syndrome or phenomenon that I refer to as background pain where you're in chronic pain for a long time, you sort of uh, no longer are consciously aware of it. And, uh, and a lot of people don't realize how much pain they're in. And, and you know, uh, with all the, the hue and cry about the opioid crisis, um, I see lots of people whose pain is undertreated. I mean, you get their pain under control, their sleep improves, their mood improves, their fatigue improves. Um, Sometimes even the patients are reluctant to take the medication that they need and, and I'll have to bargain with them and say, well, here's a, a prescription for, you know, five or six pills, take a pain pill at bedtime every night for a few nights and see whether you sleep better or not, because that's the easiest way to see how much pain is really disrupting your sleep. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, and again, different, different issues for different people, uh, but focusing on pain and sleep and mood and the idea that that vicious cycle is not gonna get better unless you address all those issues. You know, your depression will never get better as long as you're in pain. Your pain will never get better as long as you're depressed. Uh, your sleep will never get better if you're depressed and in pain. Um, and um, yeah, and sometimes, you know, uh, but as you said, the, the, the first thing I do when seeing a new patient is, is sort of go over with them how the pieces all fit together and reassure them that they're not imagining this stuff. And there's a reason why you have this symptom. There's a reason this happens when you do this. Uh, and that, you know, and that there is a, a treatment program we can set up that hopefully will relieve some of your symptoms. And, and I would love to, while we're on the topic of treatment, I would love to also circle back to hormones because you had mentioned about testosterone. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. 
what, how do you approach that in terms of uh, working up people and, and, or treating? Well, this is something I just, I happened to notice eh, probably seven or eight years ago now that um, a half dozen college age women who um, worked on their sleep, we worked on their pain, we worked on their, on their mood, they were feeling better, they were sleeping better, they had more energy, they were getting more exercise and they just weren't building muscle. They weren't getting stronger. Their joints weren't getting more stable even though they were going to the gym for an hour or five days a week. And I said, well, you know, you know, exercise physiology is not my field, but it seems to me that you don't need too much to build muscle except, except exercise and protein and testosterone. Um, and so I measured these women's testosterone levels and lo and behold, they were extremely low. Um, and then I had no luck at all in finding either an endocrinologist or a gynecologist who was willing to treat these people because the conventional wisdom in those fields is that the problem doesn't even exist. I mean, there isn't even a, you know, 60,000 ICD-10 codes. There isn't a code for testosterone deficiency in women. Um, and the conventional wisdom is we shouldn't be measuring these levels because you don't really know what normal and abnormal is. So we'll just pretend it doesn't exist. Um, so no, but you know, if, if a normal level is, is uh, the NIH norms are 15 to 75 and you're a 19, healthy 19 year old with a level of six, that's gotta be part of the reason you don't feel well and are having trouble with motivation and are especially having trouble building muscle. Um, so again, not being a gynecologist or an endocrinologist, I didn't feel qualified to prescribe testosterone to these women. So I would usually recommend that they take DHEA, which is available over the counter. Uh, and which the body can convert into especially estrogen and, and testosterone sort of as it sees fit. So uh, with a number of safety margins there, uh, I actually just saw somebody yesterday who just looks so much better. I, I made the, you know, analogy she probably didn't appreciate of, you know, veterinarians looking at a dog and saying, oh, this is a very healthy dog. Look how shiny their coat is. I said, your, your skin tone, <laughs> your skin tone and the sheen of your hair and the, your muscle tone is just so much better than when I saw you three months ago. It was just dramatic. Um, and the same thing, I had one young woman, we started on this. And when she came back three months later, I was worried I'd given her too much. It was like, all of a sudden she built a lot of muscle in a short period of time. Um, so uh, it's just, you know, uh, uh, again, as a, uh, I, I often joke, you know, I'm a clinician. I get to make these observations. Somebody smarter than me has to figure out what's really going on here. Uh, and these are not, you know, it's not opioids. Opioids can suppress testosterone. These were not people who were taking opioids. So I think there's something going on there. Uh, clearly something I've mentioned in a, in a couple of recent talks has been um, apparent dysfunction in the HPA axis and cortisol secretion. And uh, they see people who, my best um, speculation about this is that uh, just the way in the dysautonomia is the central feature is an exaggerated stress response, exaggerated sympathetic adrenaline stress response, that uh, cortisol is really your body's other major stress hormone. And if you're making too much adrenaline in response to some kind of acute stress, you're probably making an excessive cortisol surge too. Um, and because these surges, like, like the bump in adrenaline levels, are probably transient, the odds of having a blood test and catching one of these are pretty slim. I've had a few people where we've done blood tests half a dozen times and not only seen normal levels, but often seen low cortisol levels. And you know, I've had to say, look, you're, 
you know, you're 275 pounds, you clearly don't have adrenal insufficiency. You look like you have too much cortisol, not too little. Um, and finally on the, you know, fifth or sixth blood test, we'd see a really high uh, cortisol level. Um, and if you look at, you know, symptoms and clinical manifestations of excessive cortisol, one of the big ones is fatigue. So it all kind of loops back. Uh, Again, these are syndromes I've tried to sort of explain to various endocrinologists. Do you have any thoughts about what's going on? And this just doesn't compute. It doesn't fit in any paradigm that they've that they've encountered before. But clinically, it sort of makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. Especially looking at it with with dysautonomia and how it all ties together that way. So if if there's any researchers out there listening, <laughs> here's a good one for you. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I, right. I say, you know, right. If if only. Uh, you know, uh, uh, if only somebody like Bill Gates had a family member with, say, Addison's disease, and and we could have, you know, these patients could finger stick their cortisol levels, uh, both the ones who are truly adrenal insufficient and are trying to manage their their cortisol replacement just by guessing, uh, but also some of these people who clearly, I think, have fluctuating cortisol levels. That would be really helpful, um, but I don't know. Um, yeah, I did years ago. I remember talking to one of the top mast cell docs uh, about how difficult it was to find abnormal blood tests. You know, you really would um, increase your yield by running off to the lab. The, you know, whenever you wake up covered in hives, quickly run off to the lab and then maybe your levels will be high. Uh, and I asked him, do you ever have any patients who uh, intentionally trigger some kind of reaction to improve the yield of their testing? And his response was no comment. <laughs> 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 uh, so that's another place. I just, uh, I think Linda, you remember the, the PT at last week's uh, uh, EDS uh, mm -hmm. conference. It yep. was asking about, you know, this patient looks like she has mast cell problems and adding chromalin really helped, but all of her mast cell testing has been negative so far. And I sent her an email saying that's the rule, not the exception. Uh, right. The people who have elevated mast cell markers are, are relatively uncommon. Um, and it's analogous situation to the, to the HSD situation where I say, man, clinically, this is obviously what you have. I mean, you know, if you take chromalin and, you know, a bunch of your symptoms improve, this is obviously, you know, a mast cell problem. And even if all your so-called, you know, tests for mast cell come up negative, that doesn't really change what you have. That's true. And we have had um, other guests on the podcast who have said the exact same thing. Um, I think it was an immunologist who was talking about that and how the blood tests are so are something she tries not to have as the, the gold standard for her because it's so difficult to find um, what you're looking for sometimes in the blood work. And it's, as you said, it could be eight different results if you do eight different tests in, in one day. Right, so, and, the, and the whole, you know, while it was nice, the, the paper about the hyperalpha tryptosemia was nice to say, okay, these people aren't imagining this, they really do have elevated tryptose levels, then, somehow that morphed into, oh, your tryptase levels are normal. You must not have mast cell problems. I try to explain to people, no, we actually would expect your tryptase levels to be normal in the vast majority of cases if you have mast cell problems. Well, so we, so this is clearly an area that needs a lot of research. Is there, is there any other area that you would like to see research um, with um, fatigue and hypermobility? Is there anything else you're hoping will, will happen? Well, I think the biggest thing I've hoped for for years is that somebody will try to figure out how to fix what's wrong with their sleep. Um, mm. I mean, the, the, the pattern is pretty consistent. They have little or no deep sleep and they have frequent so-called spontaneous arousals. 
And I just assume this is mostly because their sympathetic tone is too high and that's how I've treated it. But, you know, is this a circadian rhythm disorder where their body is just out of sync and thinks they should be awake when they really should be asleep? Um, I, I don't know, you know, at what level, um, and unfortunately the, the conventional wisdom in the sleep community is that um, sleep is regulated at a cortical level that it's not under autonomic control. Mm. Uh, and that's clearly doesn't seem to be the case in these patients where, you know, tinkering with their autonomics affects their sleep quality and, and their sleep architecture. And this is not a subjective thing. This is something you can, you can measure in the sleep lab. Um, so that's really a, the biggest thing because I think there's just a huge number of people. I, you know, literally saw one this week. Uh, he, he, you know, chronically tired. He's a guy in his mid fifties. He's an attorney who's having cognitive issues. And I, I just tried to explain to him. I said, you're exhausted. This is all fatigue. Your trouble with, you know, following complicated stuff and, you know, decision-making anything analytical, higher executive functions. This is all fatigue. This is not, you know, the beginning of Alzheimer's. This is because you haven't had a rest of my sleep in decades. Mm. So he finally went and had a sleep study had mild sleep apnea. I think he had a AHI of nine or 10, uh, normals up to five, five to 15 is mild. Um, so he went back and, and was fitted with a CPAP mask and pressures adjusted till he had no apnea. But since they put on the mask and dialed it up and his apnea went away, he still had 84 arousals and 13 awakenings in less than five hours of sleep. Wow. So, and the idea that, you know, that, gee, you might have mild apnea and it's important to treat it, but there's another sleep problem going on here, completely escaped the board certified sleep physician that read his sleep study. He said, you know, his apnea is well controlled and didn't comment on the fact that he spent 0.2% of his night in deep sleep. He had essentially no deep sleep, even after apnea was completely limited, eliminated. Uh, and so, you know, again, that's a professional education issue that somebody needs to recognize this pattern. And, and again, this is something I've described for probably close to 20 years now. And nobody, you know, I explain it to sleep doctors and they still just don't get it. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's really, I've had to find, you know, one place where research would really help. It's, I mean, because that people are working on the autonomics and some of the others of this, but I don't, you know, um, that people go to, you know, top sleep labs in the, in the country. And, you know, one of them very sadly went to probably the top sleep lab in the country and they were, and, and was told you just have chronic insomnia and there's nothing really you can do about it. Oh, you know, it's like, what's the worst thing you can tell somebody with a chronic illness is nothing you can do for them. Uh, so yeah. And that's where I would, you know, if I had yeah. some money to put research, kind of hoping that some of the uh, long COVID money might go into that, but haven't, I haven't seen any of that yet. Well, it's, it's, I'm hopeful because I've learned a lot just from our conversation here. And I, right. and I, the things that we had, the changes that I've seen um, with hypermobility and it's um, how visible it is, um, at least in, in the, in the dance world and sort of in the dance medicine, medicine circles I'm in, it's mm -hmm. encouraging to me. I think it's leapt forward so much. And so 10 years from now, we'll look back on this podcast and we'll be like, ha, 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 remember when we didn't even have a sleep study on this, you know, we'll be like, yeah, that was the dark ages because we will have done so much. Yeah. The internet um, is a great, the internet is a great thing that 
you know, when I wrote up 2010, I wrote a little paper for my patients to share with their families about what their different symptoms were like and how they all fit together. And I wouldn't have dreamed for a minute that that paper would still be flying around the internet 10 years later. And the number of people who found that helpful and found, oh, gee, man, this is, you know, how does this guy know all this about me? I've never met him. <laughs> uh, so the internet has been great. And I think, you know, you know, the only downside of that, I think our major progress in the last decade clearly has been in public awareness, uh, patient education, uh, mm -hmm. some increase in professional awareness, especially in the physical therapy community more than the physician community. Um, yep. But the flip side of that is, you know, there hasn't been much research in terms of, you know, I mean, I often say to patients, it's 2022 now, and we have essentially one new pain medicine, one new antidepressant, and one new sleeping pill this decade, or this century, really. Uh, there just haven't been any advances in, in basic stuff. You turn on the TV, and there's the latest monoclonal antibody for this or that obscure illness. And it's like, these are, I mean, you know, insomnia and depression and pain. These are major issues that millions and millions of people suffer with. And nothing new to offer them. So uh, not to end on a down note. But <laughs> well, but that, that's such a great point. And I, and I have to confess, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms before when I see an ad for, you know, like you said, some, some more obscure thing. And, and if we could get more people to be able to work and be productive members of society, and then they get the meaning out of, out of being able to, to work and contribute and all of that, um, man, that would be just a, such a huge thing for, for society at large, you know, to well, just, yeah, I'm interested in pharmacogenetics and the, and the idea that different people metabolize drugs differently. And, you know, if you're a poor 2D6 metabolizer or, or intermediate, which is pretty common, almost half the population is that eliminates half the opioids, <laughs> uh, and hydrocodone aren't going to be effective for you. And then you're left with, you know, fentanyl, opana, morphine, you only have a few options. And then if you've got a, you get a rash from this one and this one causes this, then suddenly you have almost nothing left. It's just uh, very frustrating. Well, you have given us a lot to think about today. Um, and I really appreciate uh, your sharing your expertise right. on this. Was there anything that right. we didn't touch on that you wanted to cover? No, I don't. I don't think so. I'll probably think of something later tonight, but uh, <laughs> uh, no, but I'm ha I mean, this kind of thing is great. I mean, I'm happy to spend an hour of my time knowing just how many people will get some benefit out of this. And there's you know, such a small number of people that I can actually see in the office and sort of help one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, but a lot of people fortunately are able to take some ideas to this and hopefully take them to their physicians and say, you know, how about this? Or have you ever thought about this? Or have you ever tested that? Uh, and mm -hmm. maybe make some progress. That is so our hope. Yeah, thank you guys for all your, this takes a lot of effort on your part too, obviously. <laughs> well, we are grateful for your That's time you and yeah. hope that it reaches um, our listeners, as you said, and can do some help. You have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. And today we have been speaking with Dr. Alan Pasinki. Dr. Pasinki, thank you so much for sharing your thank expertise you. with us today. Thank you, my pleasure. Thank you so Bye. much. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other aesthetic athletes. If you found this information valuable, please share it with a colleague or friend and leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Remember to subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. If you want to follow us on Instagram, it's at bendy underscore bodies and our website is www 
bendybodies.org. If you want to follow Bendy Bodies founder and co-host Dr. Bluestein on Instagram, it's at hypermobilitymd, all one word, and her website is www.hypermobilitymd.com. If you want to follow co-host Jennifer Milner on Instagram, it's at jennifer.milner, M-I-L-N-E-R, and her website is www.jennifer-milner.com. Thank you for helping us spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions. We want to hear from you. Please email us at info at bendybodies.org to share feedback. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the co-host and their guests. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. The thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. This information is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease as this information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please refer to your local qualified health practitioner for all medical concerns. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies podcast.